Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Java Junkies, welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work at an international education company, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is the Chief Culture Officer at Education First a global education company that combines language training with cultural exchange, academic achievement, and educational travel to deliver courses and programs that transform dreams into international opportunities. But before I introduce you to Ming Chun, who also holds a Guinness Book World Record, get this, for the longest English lesson, I almost said English session, it was an English lesson ever taught. I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice and job seeking tips, as well as unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Ming Chun, the Chief Culture Officer at Education First, an international education company that was founded in 1965 in Sweden. And it specializes in educational travel, cultural exchanges, and language training. Ming is based in Hong Kong and was actually recruited to join Education First right out of Harvard Business School. And that was almost a quarter of a century ago. Over the last 23 years, Ming has held a variety of roles. And today she runs global marketing, branding, and communications. But when Ming graduated from university, Ming didn't start off in the education field. She was an on-air presenter at Star Television before pivoting into marketing at Turner Broadcasting System, which is also known as TBS and is a Warner Media Company. Ming is also an author, along with her identical twin sister, of three children's books, the latest one entitled Escape, One Day We Had to Run. These are real stories of flights to freedom. And last but not least, Ming is a major league marathon runner. She has run at least two marathons a year for over 30 years. Ming, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your Starbucks iced coffee and ready to go? Yes, I still have half a glass left. Do you kind of keep yourself to just one 
cup a day or are you like me where it may stretch into two or three? It stretches into two. Oh, it stretches into two. Okay. <laughs> and is it always iced? Yes. And why is that? Oh, it's just so refreshing. I'm a real cold foam, cold brew junkie. Love it. Love it. Well, I have to ask you about the marathon running because I have only ever run one marathon when I was 19 years old. And it was actually when I was studying my second year of Chinese at the Middlebury College Language School, the summer language school. And my roommate was a serious runner. And so she and I started running together as a way to kind of deal with stress. And the next thing you knew, like I was doing 10 milers on the weekend. And, and then I was like, huh, I think I'm going to try running a marathon. But where did it start for you? Oh, for me, it started in Boston when I was a first year student in college. And the Boston Marathon is the marathon of all marathons, the mother of all marathons. And two friends like you, I think marathoning is a very social sport. It's much easier to do when you have a running partner or running partners. And I had two wonderful running partners and we ran the first year. And then I decided I have a slightly compulsive personality. <laughs> and so, which running is great for. So it was running or smoking. Not that I, but smoking is also for compulsive personalities. So I figure it's the lesser of two evils. Totally. I actually did start smoking my senior year of college, just, you know, a little. And then, of course, I moved to Beijing where everyone smoked and still smokes like a chimney. And that lasted for, gosh, I think I smoked a couple of years and then I quit. But good on you. You moved on to coffee. Huh? Then you moved on to coffee. Yeah, I totally. And I've, and I've stayed there. I've totally stayed there. So, all right, let's make a sharp right turn and get into education first. I gave sort of the 10,000 foot overview, but as one of the chief spokespeople for education first, could you just paint the picture for our young listeners of what this company is? Sure. EF is, we like to call it the apple of education. And we have a broad range of programs that really revolve around culturally immersive learning, whether it's educational travel on an EF educational tour or learning a language. We have an online language school called EF English Live with 24-hour access to a real live teacher. Online, we have a suite of local language schools called EF English First. And we also do cultural exchange programs like EF High School Year, Cultural Care Au Pair. Got it. Now, for our listeners who may well still be in high school, but they're also certainly going to be in college and university, why is a culturally immersive learning environment something that would be valuable to them over the course of their life? Sure. I mean, we have a high school, an IB boarding school called the EF Academy in Terrytown and opening in Pasadena. And one thing that we see from all of the nationalities that come is the broad-based, global, and relevant learning that you get when you're in a classroom with someone who's not like you. A lot of companies are talking about diversity and inclusion. And if you get that in your high school, that's a gift. Totally. And I can say as somebody who lived in Hong Kong as a child and then lived in Europe at one point and then lived in Asia for another five years after I graduated from school, I can tell you that being sensitive to other cultures 
makes you a more sensitive employee. It makes you a better team member. It opens your eyes to the importance of adaptability and flexibility, which are all super valuable skills that hiring managers are looking for no matter what the industry is. Would you agree? I absolutely agree with that. So what does the chief culture officer at Education First do, Ming? Well, first, I want to point out that that title, yes, it's a C-suite title, but I really like to think of it as an honorific. One of the reasons why EF has been able to grow exponentially from a group of Swedish young entrepreneurs in 1965 into a 50,000 strong multicultural multinational organization is because of our culture. And it really is our secret sauce or our DNA. And I think one of the reasons or the reason that I was given this honorific is that I think I embody a lot of the cultural traits that we have. And what would they be? A strong sense of entrepreneurial spirit, which I say is intrapreneurial spirit. It comes down to three words. Nobody needs to get a fancy MBA to know these words. Entrepreneurial spirit really means own your job. We like to hire and we promote people who really own their jobs. We also really value equality, standing for quality, passion, the feeling that nothing is impossible, and attention to detail. Those are our five core values. If you were to paint a more detailed picture here for our listeners about what it means to you for someone to own their job, what would that picture look like? So I'll give you an example. Our founder and owner is very senior. He obviously grew this business that very valuable, but he still checks like what the storerooms look like, all of the details about the business. Travel is very detail intensive, knowing your numbers, taking responsibility if there are mistakes. That is very important. Asking questions. A lot of people like to think that they can figure it out themselves or don't ask questions. And it's owning your job, no matter how big or small it is, is very, very important. One of the things that I teach the young people that I work with, Ming, and I'm just ground truthing this with you, is that when your supervisor, when your manager gives you a list of things they want you to do, the importance of managing up, checking back with them, asking what their priorities are. And should you finish everything on that list, coming back to them to say, hey, I've finished. Is there anything else I can do? And not just sitting there waiting for someone to read your mind. So also keeping your eyes open to other things you might be able to do or other problems you identify and perhaps coming to them with potential solutions. How does that sound? That sounds very, very relevant. And I'd like to add that it's not only looking for what more you can do or give, it's actually being able to succeed and thrive where there are no set. It's not a corporate ladder. I like to say EF is not a ladder. It's more like a spiral staircase. And oftentimes people think I'm more successful. I'm going to go to my next big job, right? And I think one of the reasons that EF is so wonderful, but it's not for everybody is that the jobs aren't necessarily like, it's not necessarily a bigger title. It might be a different project, might be a different country. It might be different, something different function, 
But people who can succeed in an environment where it's not a corporate ladder and you're not waiting for someone to promote you, it's more about looking for opportunities and taking your chances and putting in the work that needs to get done to be recognized. I think that is very, very important. Terrific. I also want to touch on what you said about your title, which is chief culture officer, that it's an honorific. Because another thing that I think is news to college students and those who have been in the workforce for a relatively short period of time, maybe even those who've been in the workforce for a long time, is that titles are made up. Most companies decide what works for them. And therefore, in the realm of the chief culture officer, you have many different responsibilities. Could you give us a sense as to what all those responsibilities include and how you juggle them? So you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that we, we broke a Guinness Book of World Records for the world's longest English lesson. Part of that was my brainchild because we needed a really good way, good, easy. Okay, it wasn't easy for the 24 people who had to stay up for 48 hours in Shanghai, but we needed a way to really get attention for this, the biggest language school that was opening in Shanghai in 2005. So I was talking with two colleagues and we were trying to brainstorm what we could do, what would get press attention. And I was like, oh, let's look up how long the world's longest English lesson was. And it was only like 36 hours. I was like, okay, so people just need to stay up for 48 hours. Okay, so we were the world record holder for a couple of years before a Polish group beat our record at 72 hours. But so that's insanity. Yes. So wait, so one of them is what? So one of them would be being creative is, I would say, part of my, I run a, we call it the creative studio in Hong Kong, which is a group of designers, videographers, content creators. Second part of my job has been helping to start new products. I mentioned EF Academy, which is an IB boarding school that we have in New York and Pasadena. And we really started that from scratch. Also helping to productize and split our language, local language school business in China. So a lot of product development and product invention. Great. And what I love about the Guinness Book World Records story, Ming, is that it was super scrappy. It's what you would call guerrilla marketing. You didn't have to spend much money at all. You just had to get two dozen willing volunteers. 24 very sleepy people. Very sleepy people or people with lots of energy who could stay awake for two days to sign up to do it. And you got a ton of media coverage, right? What we would call earned media in the PR world. And um, sponsorship from Coke. I'd like to mention that was our first Guinness Book of World Record that we set. And then for our 50th anniversary, we set the Guinness Book of World Record for the world's most international online dance, which was great. Oh, wow. That, was that, that seems a little off brand, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was a way EF has offices and schools in more than 50 countries. So it was a way to really unify our very, very worldwide organization. Yes, I totally get it. And I'm just teasing you. Okay. So could you take us into a typical day for you on the job? And we should let our listeners know we're doing this interview in the middle of June, 2021. 
things have loosened up. People are able to travel more. Having said that, I don't know how things, whether or not they've normalized to the pre-pandemic world at EF. So I'm based in Hong Kong, which is a regional office for us. I usually, pre-pandemic, would travel a lot to Shanghai, where our EF China headquarters is, or to London, where my boss, the chairman of EF, Philip Holt, sits, or to Zurich. Switzerland is our headquarters, our worldwide headquarters. So I probably travel 50% of my time at work. But let's say a typical day would be I wake up to go running with my running partners. In Hong Kong, I've always lived near the same five-mile loop called Bowen Road in mid-levels. So let's say I run, then I drop the kids off. I have three wonderful children, Emma, Charlotte, and Tommy, drop them off at school. Then I go to the office and meet. I Again, I said that help run the EF Creative Studio. And we regroup, talk about the projects, work on the projects, talk to our colleagues all over the world. It takes a lot of collaboration. We have five EF English centers within Hong Kong where we teach adults English. And typically my workday ends around 6, 6.30. And then I go home and hang out with the kids and my husband. Very nice. So I'm sure you'll admit that it is more and more unusual for someone to stay at one company for as long as you have. You've been at EF for 23 years. What do you see as being the advantages, Ming, of staying put and not sort of reinventing the wheel, starting over, starting over at a different company every X number of years? I think it's building your credibility, right? I graduated from business school in 1998, and that's when the internet really was starting to take off. So a lot of my classmates I know have switched jobs a couple of times. I'm probably one of the very few that stayed at the same organization. I think one thing that kept me at EF or has kept me at EF is that it's fun. It's really rewarding and super fun. And I think that one of the major benefits is that I've helped really see it grow. And again, I think that one of our core values is entrepreneurial business, is entrepreneurial spirit. So I really feel like I own my job. I own this company. Like it's, it's been an integral part. Some of my best friends are my colleagues. So it's really, really been fun and rewarding. Being chief cultural culture officer is just your latest role. As you said, it's an honorific. You have many different responsibilities. But how has your job and the roles that you've had evolved since joining EF right out of Harvard Business School? Well, right out of business school, I was put into an operations Learn from the trenches. As a course leader, the first thing that you do is actually learn exactly what our products sell by being part of the product. And so I was a course leader. And then I worked, I mean, it was working with the students that we send and getting really close to the customers who are mainly parents and students. And I might have graduated with this fancy degree, but really it was super valuable to get to know exactly what you're selling and what you're offering, what the problems could be, where it might be going in a couple of years. Getting firsthand knowledge of what you sell is key. And then from there, I moved to managing people who did that. And then from there, I helped with the productization of new programs like that. So what is productization? It would be figuring out what if we, let's say, said we want to start an IB boarding school. What does that look like? Going to the campuses, finding the campuses, figuring out the economics behind it, 
putting together the sales channels, putting together the marketing plan, putting together the positioning. One of the things that you said in our Espresso Shots interview, and listeners should check out show notes to see if Ming's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped, but among the most important skills that you look for in the young people that you hire are both analytical ability and creativity. Is it for this very reason, as you are thinking through how to productize different ideas, the process then that is involved in breathing life into these ideas, as well as all of the, the business I don't know. <laughs> I think I, I'm waving my hands like all of the business sort of Houdini work that goes into bringing these ideas to life. Well, when I look at who's successful at EF, it's generally people who've been generalists, not functional experts, right? Functional experts are someone who's like, I studied accounting, therefore I do finance. I'm just taking this example. Our finance people, like our chief financial officer, is a very talented woman who was a product manager before. She, so she learned every single thing about the product, then rose to be business controller. And now she's the CFO of our entire group. And I think that that is very, very valuable. One, to have product knowledge, two, to have the creativity to not only know the numbers, but to be able to put them and synthesize them into a strategic vision. And that's what I mean by being creative as well as having analytical ability. I think what you're describing there is what I often tell young people as they struggle to think about how their X, Y, or Z major would work in other industries is that when you boil it down, you're talking about what skills do you have, hard and soft skills. And those skills are not only transferable across industry, but they are transferable across functions job functions within a single company or group, as you just mentioned, Ming. Correct. Correct. And you need to be in a structure. One of the things I love about EF is that we have a structure in which it can be recognized. It's very, very important to have sort of a radar system. And if you're just starting out at your company or you're looking for a job, who's your first boss? What is your boss like? Are they going to give you the opportunity? Who else within your organization is going to take an interest in your growth? You need to look for the radar system within the organization or create your own radar system. I love that. So you would call it a radar system. I think others might say, is it going to be a cultural fit for you? Are there any other tips or insights that you could provide our young listeners to help them make that evaluation? Because so often when they're sitting across the desk or the Zoom screen from the person and the people who are interviewing them, they see it as, oh, gosh, I hope I'm giving the right answers. But they also need to be thinking about the questions that are important for them to ask those hiring managers. So you mentioned this word culture fit. And at EF, we no longer talk about culture fit in and of itself, one, because it excludes a lot of people. <laughs> but two, I think what's valuable to think about is culture add. We look for people who are going to add something to our culture, who bring a perspective or a skill set that we are looking for. And as a candidate for a job, you need to think about how do I add to this business or how am I going to add to this company and really think about it. And when you're 
interviewing, I would definitely say some of the best interviews are people who have a genuine interest in what's worrying you at night or where the business needs to go. Again, we're looking for people who we think will own their jobs. Gotcha. So I have to ask you about your passion for long distance running. You mentioned that you start every day with a five mile run with your running partners. How many marathons have you run as of now, June 2021? And why does long distance running continue to be such an important part of your life? And do you have any advice for our listeners about incorporating an activity that is going to keep them healthy? So I just ran my 72nd marathon three weeks ago. And I think I run marathons because I don't consider myself a fast runner, but I can run for a long time. And marathoning is more about mental stamina, I think, than physical. Of course, physical stamina helps. But I wrote a Huffington Post blog piece called The Unorthodox Guide to Marathon Training. So people can look for my 10 tips on how to train for a marathon. But one of them is just get out there, lace up your shoes and start running, even if it's just for a mile. And also find a running partner. You talked about your own marathon journey. And I think having someone who holds you accountable is very important. And why did you start? Was it just, or I shouldn't say not why you started, but why you've continued? I started in college. I was a tennis player in high school. I think tennis, you actually have to have a second person. Running, you don't need a second person. So when I just got to college, Boston's a wonderful running town. And I think that it was a really, really, really easy way to think about things and think about everything. I have a very busy life and the five miles I run every day is at time. It's people meditate. I run. I agree. It is a very meditative process because the way your feet hit the ground and whatnot. Well, huge congratulations on number 72. And are they still hard to run? I think I'm getting slower. So, but they're still really fun. And you still find that it's something that is pushing you in order to get across that finish line. And I was able to run with my twin sister, my nephew who ended up winning the half. So it's a great way to spend time with family and friends. Speaking of spending time with family and friends, I read a recent interview with you in which you said you believe the idea of a work-life balance is a myth. How would you describe it? And especially for our young listeners who are going to be starting their careers, may have just started that first one or two miles in their professional marathon. What do you think they should have sort of at, not, not that they need to be completely buttoned up for the next 20 years of their professional life, but just things that they should be aware of to help them live a fulfilled life? (laughs) Well, that's a big question. But I do think that this whole stuff about work-life balance is a myth. I wouldn't say I have work-life balance, but I'd say that I look at my life and what I do with my time, which is the only denominator that we have to judge our careers, like what do we do with our time, as a series of trade-offs right? Like when one thing increases, the other decreases. So instead of work-life balance, I'd like to say, how are you viewing the trade-offs in your life? Do I live in this city or that? Do I do this job or the other one? Or do I have children or don't I have children? Those are trade-offs that you 
make and about how you spend your time. And I think that through that lens, I've looked at my own career. Do I rather, would I rather stay at EF or do another job? And I've always judged the trade-off as I'd rather stay at EF, which is why I've been here for <laughs> almost 23 years. So yeah, I think that that to me has been really helpful. So let's flash back really quickly to when you were at university, you went to Harvard and you majored in East Asian studies. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree, Ming, when you graduated? Definitely not. I had no conception of what I wanted to do after college. But I would say during the summers of college, I used them to eliminate things. I lived in Hong Kong and I knew, oh, I could live in Hong Kong. This is a really fun city. Or I taught at Wellesley's summer school and I was like, oh, I do not like teaching. And then I worked for an art auction house. I said, hmm, I don't think I'm going to do that later. So it was really helpful during college and summers to sort of figure out where I wanted to live, what I didn't want to do, because it was easier to eliminate. And But I still didn't graduate thinking, oh, I want to be in for-profit education. I had no idea what that meant. And I just fell into my first job through random luck at Star TV. So. Yeah. So let me ask you, what was that first job and how did you get it? When you say random luck, what did that look like? So I knew one thing after college that I definitely wanted to try living in Hong Kong. So if you can decide like kind of what city you're interested in living in, like that's great. And then I had no idea what I would be good at or what I could get hired for. So I met as many people as possible through contacts. You know, you don't have to go to a fancy school like Harvard. Talk to people. People are so willing to talk to college students or young people, even if you don't go to college. And People want to be helpful to other people, I've generally found. And so I talked to someone who was who knew somebody who was working at Star TV and they needed a business analyst. I did not study business and I did not do analytical stuff in college. I was a liberal arts major in history. And I did that for a year. And then another opportunity came up to work in production. And then they were looking for an on-air presenter for their children's channel. And it just sort of happened like that. I did not have a pre-programmed plan. And I must say, I know people are really worried about making money. And I was lucky not to graduate with debt. But I did not graduate with a high paying job at all. But I would say, you know, use your youth to take chances and pay off your credit card bill. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Don't live on your credit cards for sure. And what Ming was just describing there is networking and doing informational interviews, which is something that I talk about at least every other day on LinkedIn. So please follow me and I will teach you how to do that. Two final T4C questions, Ming. If you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled, maybe you even failed. I've been fired twice in my 40s and they turned out to be incredible gifts that forced me to pivot into different industries. I ask my guests this question, not because I'm looking to embarrass them, far from it. It's really to empower our young listeners to realize that fails have the biggest opportunities for learning. And it's also important to know that you'll get through it. And perhaps if there was a lesson that you learned in the process, me. Sure. I mean, this one is most relevant for when I was in my 20s. And since your listeners are in your 20s, in my first job, I was very junior. 
as a business analyst and we were looking at media assets to purchase. And one of the purchasing, one of the things I had to do was run sort of a, a report or do a study about what if we acquired an adult movie channel, which is basically porn. And I felt super uncomfortable. I talked to someone at the office about it and I'm like, I really do not believe in this. Like, I don't want any part of putting porn on a hotel network. And I was just, again, I was my first job out of college and I did not believe in it. And one of the reasons why I applied to business school was that I was like, hmm, I do not want to be part of this. I don't know how to handle it. I think I figured, I don't know whether that counts as a fail, but I think that when you're young and you're asked to do things and people now are much better about it, standing up for things they did not necessarily believe in and felt uncomfortable with. I ended up applying to business school because of that. So you use that as your get out of jail free card? Yes. Okay. Final question. If you could go back to Harvard and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Oh my God. I tell all these people going to college all the time now. Go to your professor's office hours. I mean, that sounds like super basic, but we had some rock star professors at Harvard, and I happened to go to like one or two office hours. And the guy I went to was teaching this art and literature course, and his name is Simon Shama. He's like on the BBC now. He's amazing. He writes for the FT. And I'm like, why didn't I do that with more of my professors? Take advantage of these brilliant brains at your disposal. Go to their office hours, ask them questions. Yeah. And develop a relationship with them because they know people too. They can help open doors for you as well. And at the very least, they can be a letter of reference to your first job or whatever that may be. And yeah, you'll learn. You'll learn a ton from getting to speak with them outside the classroom. That is great advice, Ming. Ming is the author, along with her twin sister, of a brand new children's book entitled Escape. One day we had to run. These are real stories of flights to freedom. Ming, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I just love this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.